Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Happy New Year. I'm so excited to begin with you a new class that covers a whole range of biblical doctrines. In fact, I'm going to combine two classes into one, and I think they will work together really well. The first class was originally titled Basic Bible Doctrine, and it covered approximately 15 different major beliefs. The goal was to explain these aspects of theology and give supporting scripture and reasons for them. I'm combining this with a more advanced class called Solutions to Bible Texts, which deals with commonly misunderstood verses on a bunch of doctrines. I'm going to attempt to interweave these two so that you get a comprehensive understanding of theology. Now, I realize that you very well may disagree with my understanding on some of these beliefs. So, we may have some exciting dialogue in the comments on these episodes. I freely admit at the outset that I don't know everything and that I have been wrong in the past. So, please, I just ask that you give it a charitable listen and that you check the truth against the scriptures for yourself. But anyhow, this class will be a good way to lay it all out there and see what you think. To begin with, this episode is an introduction that covers some important basics about approaching truth and biblical Bible doctrines. Here now is Podcast 156, Theology, Part 1, Introduction. I grew up in a group that believed that when you die, you're asleep in the grave until Jesus comes back to take you to heaven. Uh, And that was a belief I grew up with as a, a little boy. And then one year, one of our ministers read an Anthony Buzzard book. And he started teaching that there's this thing, this thing called the kingdom of God, and it's coming to the earth, and we have to stop singing all the heaven songs. And it was just very disturbing to me. <laughs> and I remember I grabbed my friend, Victor, and I said to him, we got to be going to heaven, man. I mean, everybody knows we're going to heaven. There's all these songs, like we talk about it. I mean, it's in movies. It's got to be true. And so we decided we would try to find the verse in the Bible that teaches that. And we looked and looked and looked as much as a couple of teenagers can before, like, I mean, there were computers, but we didn't have, I don't think we had, uh, like, Bible websites yet where you can search for stuff. So we were looking around and looking around, and we, we never found those verses. And so we had to change our beliefs. And I've changed my beliefs a lot over the years, and I think that that really informs who I am as a person. I also am a very curious person. My first degree was in computer engineering, which is like how to design chips. I love to try to understand how things work. So my approach to this class is very much the perspective of somebody who wants to know how the doctrine works. How does this teaching, how does this belief actually work? Biblically, how does it relate to real life? How does it interact with other beliefs that we have? And so let's go over the syllabus. In one sense, there's nothing basic about Bible doctrine. 
Constructing a coherent biblical theology on any topic takes immense effort from collecting the many texts on the topic to interpreting each one of them based on their own literary, historical, and theological context to conceiving of an understanding that simply yet elegantly embraces the most texts possible while minimizing the number of difficult texts to compare other doctrinal systems, both ancient and modern. The process is anything but basic. See, I can write long sentences. That one's probably too long. Uh, essentially what I'm saying here is doctrine itself is a, a very complicated process. It really is the pinnacle of Bible study. Bible study works like this. The first thing is you, you have the text itself. If we're talking about the New Testament, the text is in what language? No? no. Greek. Very good. So figuring out the text itself, which is the, as far as the New Testament is concerned, is in Greek. And then the second thing is translation into your own language, unless you fluently speak ancient Greek, which even modern Greek people don't do. And then the next thing after that is what's called exegesis. And then, uh, which exegesis is understanding what it means. Okay, just simple as that. And then after that, then you have doctrine itself. So it's, it's like the last stage of this whole process. First, like as far as the text goes, we're talking about 5,000 scraps of paper that have survived from before the printing press that scholars compare to each other to figure out which uh, manuscripts, which reading is the best. All right, that's a whole field itself. It's called textual criticism. Then when it comes to translation, that's a whole separate field as well. Now you're getting into making one language into another, formal equivalence, dynamic equivalence, all these kinds of things. Then you have exegesis. That's a whole field, all right? Exegesis is an extremely important part of the process in that what you're doing is you're looking at just that verse or that chapter and you're figuring out what it means. What, it, what do the words mean? What's the main point? How does it work within the chapter, within that book, within the corpus, and so on? And then last of all, you put together all the different verses on a subject and you get doctrine. But what we're doing in here is really level one. So I'm just going to tell you what the Bible teaches as simply and comprehensively as possible, okay? And then in systematic theology, you're going to find out what all the other Christian denominations, what do they all think? And, and now you're going, to, you're going to start debating and having some conversation back and forth where you might even have to represent a position that you don't hold yourself just to see how good it is. And that's not me. That's uh, with, uh, what's Bob's last name? Jones. Professor Jones. Uh, and, he, and he does that. But you have to really have this foundation in place or else you're not really going to be able to know where you stand on things. And some of you, hey, some of you will already have a really good foundation and a lot of this will be pretty easy for you, but I'm not looking just to tell you what the main beliefs are in the Bible. I also want you to know what the verses are that support it, okay? Because it's one thing to say, well, I believe this, and then you are in conversation with somebody that believes differently and they're like, well, why? So you do need to have these verses and the overall concepts pretty well understood in order to be able to stand on your own two feet, uh, theologically speaking. Even so, the end result is often simple enough to comprehend and communicate, though it rests upon the work of teams of specialists drawn from a variety of fields. This course aims to introduce the students to the main biblical doctrines and give some 
mostly biblical warrants and backings for each. So I'm interested in not in just communicating to you what the doctrine is, but I also want you to know why. Why do we believe this? What are the verses behind it? How does the logic work? By training, I am a church historian. I went to Boston University and got my master's there in church history. So it's really hard for me not to tell a whole story about what ancient groups believed in this idea and how that developed over time. But I'm going to restrain myself the best I can. Uh, and those of you who don't like history, you're like, oh, shh. But uh, those of you who do, you have to take a church history class with me or with Professor Bob. All right, so first up today is pedagogy, and then um, bibliology after the break, and then after the next break, anthropology. So you're noticing like there's a lot of ology <laughs> words on this. I wrote in regular English what that means in the middle, and then the category is like the nerdy term for it, which, hey, I mean, if you're going to go to Bible college, might as well come away with some nerdy terms so that the next time you're at a party and you're trying to impress your friends, you'd be like, well, I disagree with your anthropology. And they're like, what do you mean, like the store? No, no, your doctrine of, of humanity. Come on. And uh, you'll be able to pull those kinds of things out and, and use them. All right, so does anybody know what that ology suffix means? Study of. Very good, study of. So you have bibliology, which I'm, I'm going to do after the break. That's the study of the Bible. That's, in other words, what do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe it's just written by people and God didn't have anything to do with it? Do you believe that God inspired it? What's your view of inspiration? Those kinds of things. Then anthropology is what's your, what's your view of humanity? Anthropos is the Greek word for human. Uh, it can refer to men or women. There's a separate word for man and a separate word for woman, but anthropos is, is pretty generic. So what we do is we go through all these different doctrines. There are more doctrines than these. These are just like the big ones. Some of these doctrines have subcategories that we're not going to get into just because... I don't want to stress you out with like excessive detail. Uh, okay. Acts 17.11 for me is one of the most important verses when it comes to doctrine or when it comes to understanding the Bible. And this is a really interesting text because it talks about people being skeptical. The Apostle Paul had just traveled to this town and... This is what it says. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They wanted to examine the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So rather than accepting what the Apostle Paul was bringing to them or rejecting what he was saying, they checked the scriptures to see if it was true. And that's what we're going to do in this class. We're going to do the, and this is uh, the people of Berea, right? So we call this the Berean, the Berean attitude. It's Berean stuff in Christianity, Berean meetings. But uh, the Berean, the Bereans were the people from the city of Berea who did this when Paul came. They, they had an open mind, but not so open their brain fell out, right? They didn't just like believe everything he said. And they, and they were scripturally grounded but not so much so that they were unwilling to hear, oh, maybe God's done something new, which was Jesus coming for them, was definitely new. So that's the Berean mindset. They neither accepted nor rejected the message, and that really impressed Paul. And he calls them 
noble-minded. So we all know stop signs are red, right? I wonder what color your street signs are here. Do you have a color for your street signs? Like where it has the name of the street on it? Yeah, back home for me it's green too. What color is the yield sign? Yeah, red. Red. Yeah, red. Wait a second. Are you saying, what are you saying? I'm pretty sure it's yellow. You're saying yellow and you're saying, okay, what do you say? No, they're red. In fact, it's red. In fact, it's red. Generally, when I ask this question, most people say yellow. And there has not been a yellow yield sign in the United States for 50 years, since the 1960s. Uh, is when the last yellow sign was around. So unless, unless Luke is really an old soul. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we get confused about that because on a stoplight you have red, yellow, and green, right? And I kind of primed you. I gave you red, and then I gave you green, and then yield on a stoplight means is yellow, right? So my point is we can be, we can be wrong about something as simple as a yield sign, we're fallible, we're people, we make mistakes. And so we need to be open enough to consider, especially if somebody's bringing to us a message about the Bible, we need to be willing to be like Bereans and check the Bible to see if it's really true or not. All right, I wanna do two quick brainstorming exercises with you and ask you the question, why, what reasons do you think there would be to misunderstand the Bible? All right, somebody give me one. They don't read the translation right. Explain that a little bit. Like they read it and everything, try to translate it, but they don't get the right translation. Okay, so wrong translation? Mm -hmm. Okay. Wrong translation or tra translation errors, something like that. All right, what, what's another reason why people might end up misunderstanding the Bible? Maybe not even on purpose. Base it off of what we know instead of um, putting it back in their time. Okay, so we read read our own ideas into it. Also, the issue that you said there of like historical separation, and that that leads to anachronism, which is the uh, the worst sin when uh, reading scripture. Anachronism is when you read a modern idea into an ancient text, like as if I asked the question, "What kind of car did the apostles drive?" What's that? No. no, it was an accord. They were all in one accord. You didn't... <laughs> right, obviously that's an anachronism. Anachronism is where you're taking something from a chronology in one place and putting it way back in the past. They didn't have, like, what, were they PC people or Mac people? There weren't computers yet, you know? So, like, these kinds of questions that we might just assume, you know, and, and sometimes we, we assume they were more primitive than they really were because we don't have, we haven't studied ancient, Middle Eastern or, or Second Temple period life. Uh, so, for example, did they have running water? In some cities, they did. And so, I don't know about in Jerusalem, but I know for sure in Ephesus, they had running water. It wasn't pressurized and in like pipes like ours, but it, it was constantly running from an aqueduct down through the rich people's houses and then down into uh, common areas. But if you were a rich person in Ephesus in the first and second centuries, you had running water in your house. You also had a uh, private bathtub, right, with hot water in it. 
and you would have heated floors. They had devised a system by which they raised the floor up about this much, and they had a fire going in a different room, and the smoke went underneath the floors and in the walls, and it, you had a nice heated floor. So, I mean, these people are not more primitive than we are intellectually. They just don't have the accumulated knowledge that we now have, and they haven't had the industrial and technological revolutions yet. But they're smart. They're really smart people. Uh, and their sentences are way longer than mine, for the record. Tr translation errors, I'm going to add to that just the whole idea of language. When it comes to the Old Testament, they wrote it in Hebrew. I'm trying to learn Hebrew now, and it's, it's very different than English. I've noticed that. What about culture? Cultural separation. Let me ask you this. Did they, did they have divorce in their world? In the, time, in the time of Jesus, for example, did they have divorce? Yeah, they did have divorce. Divorce is not a modern idea. What about abortion? You think they practiced abortion? I've got like two nods and then no. Yeah, abortion was very common in their world. They did it very differently than we do it. Well, I hope we don't do it, but then our society does it today. What about reading? Do you think they could read in the time of Jesus? Some could. Most people, most people were not able to read. Reading was not... Like, like, for us, reading is essential. You can't really get by in life without reading. Most jobs require a certain amount of reading. In their world, reading was like really unnecessary. I mean, if you're a farmer, you don't really need to read. Um, if you go to synagogue, they're going to read the Bible to you. So it's not like... And you, nobody has their own private copies because a Bible would be extremely expensive because paper was insanely expensive because paper was made from reeds. Did you guys already know that, that it's made from reeds? Uh, do you know what the name of the reed is? Do you know, Madison? Papyrus. Papyrus, yeah. Papyrus. And what they did, you know what a reed is, right? It's like tall grass that grows along a river, okay? So they get these reeds from the Nile in Egypt, and they would lay them down like this, and they would flatten them out, and then they lay them down like this, and flatten them, flatten them out, and that was their paper. So, I mean, we're talking about a, a really labor-intensive process. And then the on, only other way to get paper in their world was parchment, which was animal skin. Animal skin will last way longer than papyrus. But you have to kill an animal <laughs> to, to get it, and then prepare the skin, and then stretch it out. I mean, it was a real process. And so reading was not a common skill. Uh, it would only be a few people. Obviously, the rabbis could read. Any of the, um, the scribes, talk about the scribes in the New Testament, they could read. But it, it wasn't all that common. They had a different view of metaphysics, uh, or we could call that cosmology. They just believed different things about the world. I mean, if I tell you, picture the earth, you're probably imagining that like blue marble famous picture from the Apollo mission. Like they didn't have Apollo missions yet. So they thought about, like if I said to them, picture the earth, they'd probably picture a field with soil in it, soil and, and, and grains. You know, that's earth to them. Whereas earth to us is like 70% water and has all these hurricanes. Um, or they tend to think about things in terms of function rather than essence. So, for example, 
In the beginning, we'll look at this later. Let me ask you this. What did God call the light in the beginning? Day. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Would you have called the light day? I would never have called the light day. In verse 5 there, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. We would tend to think of light in terms of its substance. If I say to you, what is light, you wouldn't say day. If I say to you, what is light, you'd be like, it's a particle wave duality based on the movement of photons at the speed of light, which is 3 times 10 to the 8th meters per second. You, you give me some sort of sciencey explanation of what the substance of light is, right? The ancient Hebrews tended to think in terms of function, not in terms of substance. We tend to think of things, like if I say to you, what is the sun? You're going to say a massive ball of hydrogen explosion gas that has a lot of gravity. I don't know, I'm just making stuff up. And it's a star, right? It's not even that big of a star compared to other stars we know of. And it has this like nuclear reaction that's always releasing heat and light. Like that's what we would say if I said to you, what is the sun? For them, they would say, oh, the sun is how we tell time. Or the sun is what makes the crops grow. So they're all true. It's just the biblical mindset is much more focused on function rather than substance. So if you're reading the Bible, you might misunderstand the Bible because you're thinking ontology and they're, they're, they're thinking about function. Why? Oh, and you know, we live in a different geography too, right? Like if I say to you, hey, what do you think about the Arabah? You'd be like, is that around here, Sean? <laughs> Where's the Arabah? But if you lived in Israel and somebody said, what do you think about the Arabah? You'd be like, well, it's hot there because that's a desert. Well, why do they know that? Because they live there. So they have, we have geographic separation. So you can easily make uh, misunderstandings that way. What are some reasons you think that it is hard to change our beliefs? What if I came in here and I said, Christianity is false and Buddhism is true and you need to get on the eightfold path? I'm sure you wouldn't just be like, oh, that sounds great. Why, <laughs> why would you reject that? Because we were raised to believe the way that we do. There you go. So that's a reason why it would be hard to change your beliefs, right? Because you were raised to believe a certain way. And, and what goes along with that is you have trusted teachers. Obviously, most of us, our parents are, are trusted teachers. But then we also have pastors. We have Sunday school teachers. We have other people that we might know. And if we're going to change our beliefs, then we're going against what our parents said. We're going against what other people said, right? What, what are things that might happen to you, bad things that might happen to you if you change your beliefs? Like, let's say, for example, you change to believe in uh, Buddhism. What would that do to your life? People that were close to you that believe similar to you would think you were crazy. Yeah, yeah. It would alienate you from friends right? Uh, family, right? Uh, if you change certain beliefs, you could get kicked out of your church. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years that after reading the Bible and asking some serious questions, stopped believing in the Trinity, and then they were kicked out of their church. In fact, I just met somebody last weekend that that was the case, a guy from New Jersey. Uh, and actually, he hasn't been kicked out yet, 
He's terrified to tell his church about his change in beliefs because he knows they're going to kick him out. There's no question about it. Also, here's another thing. You, sometimes your beliefs can uh, make you lose your job, depending on what belief we're talking about here. And, and then one other one is it might challenge your identity. So, for example, if you are a third-generation Church of God, and then you change your beliefs so that they no longer agree with the Church of God, if that's really your identity, then you're not going to change those beliefs, even if they were wrong, because it would be too traumatic to go through something like that. And for me, I really struggled a lot with identity when it came to changing my beliefs, because I have changed my beliefs a lot over the years. And one of the things that I dealt with was, how do I label myself? And I remember this came up in college when I went to this um, seminary because there were all different kinds of groups there. I'd sit there at lunch and people would ask me, so like, what, what are you? I came up with a list, and this is my list. I'm an Anabaptist, Adventist, Biblical Unitarian Restorationist. And they were just like, look, man, I was just trying to like be friendly. Could you pass the salt? You know, like, I wasn't trying to get into a theological lecture here. Then if I, if I changed any belief, now I'm no longer this sort of thing, I'm that sort of thing. So I don't think your beliefs should be part of your identity, or they can be part of it, but they, they shouldn't be the core of your identity, okay? Loving God, following Christ, pursuing truth wherever it leads, these kinds of things, no matter what your particular current beliefs are, they are always going to be true about you. You know what I mean? So you want to base your identity on, well, I, I think, first of all, on the fact that you that God loves you, that you love God, something something really radically stable like that. And that's a huge advantage that Christianity has over secularism and other religions, but this is not apologetic, so we're not going to talk about that. Typically speaking, in our society today, people think doctrine doesn't matter. They think, oh, well, just so long as you're a good person, that's all that really matters. They say, well, there's head knowledge and then there's heart knowledge, right? And heart knowledge is all that really matters. Head knowledge is bad. Sometimes people come up to you and be like, oh, you think you're so smart. And, and you're just like talking. You're not trying to do anything. But they, they have this like attitude towards you because it's like, oh, you went to Atlanta Bible College. So you obviously have all the answers. So it goes that in our society today, a lot of times people, they, they're against doctrine. They think doctrine is bad uh, or that it's irrelevant. A lot of times people say doctrine is just irrelevant. Well, I want to give you one crystal clear example of why doctrine matters. Because I'm convinced that doctrine matters. And it comes to us through the life of this man, George Sodini. George Sodini, in August 4th, 2009, 7.56, was a 48-year-old man who entered an L.A. fitness women's aerobics class. He turned off the lights and opened fire using three loaded handguns. He fired 36 times and shot 13 people. It was just an awful massacre, tragedy. Does anybody remember this? This wasn't that long ago, back in 2009. Uh, George was tortured by his lack of success with women. And so he went to a women's gym and he shot a bunch of women. Here's the crazy thing about him. This, he wrote a diary before he did this act and then he shot himself as well. But this is his diary. These are from his own words. Quote, Be ye holy, even as I have 
been ye holy. So his grammar's not very good. Thus says the Lord thy God, as pastor would proclaim, religion is a waste. But this guy teaches and convinced me, you can commit mass murder and then still go to heaven. Ask him. End quote. This is what Sodini said before he went in and killed these people. What I'm telling you is that his doctrine, his belief, was that you could commit, in his own words, mass murder, and still, and he believes in going to heaven, so that's where he thinks salvation is going to be. Quote number two, I took off Monday, I took off today, Monday, and tomorrow to practice my routine and make sure it's well polished. I need to work out every detail. There's only one shot. Also, I need to be completely immersed into something before I can be successful. I haven't had a drink since Friday at about 2.30. Total effort needed. Tomorrow is the big day. And this guy is just absolutely deranged. He's about to murder people. Unfortunately, I talked to a neighbor today who is a very positive and upbeat. I need to remain focused and absorb completely. Last time I tried this in January, I chickened out. Let's see how this new approach works. Maybe soon I will see God and Jesus. Interesting, huh? So he, he thinks that he's going to kill all these people and then he's going to go be with God and Jesus. At least that's what I was told. Eternal life does not depend on works. You see that? If it did, we will all be in hell. Christ paid for every sin. So how can I or you be judged by God for a sin when the penalty was already paid? People judge, but that does not matter. I was reading the Bible and the integrity of God beginning yesterday because soon I will see them. I will try not to add any more entries because this computer clicking distracts me. <laughs> this is what the Bible says. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So that contradicts what Sodini was taught in church. Now, how many of you have heard things like this, that eternal life does not depend on works? I think we've all heard sermons on that. I mean, there's actually a verse that says pretty much that. Ephesians 2.8, that salvation is not of works, lest anyone would boast. But this part right here, that because Christ has paid for every sin, therefore I can go murder people and I'm fine with God. I mean, does that seem like it makes sense to you? No, I hope not. I hope you don't believe that way. Uh, or else we have to install some metal detectors. Um, but, uh, I mean, look, doctrine matters. What you believe affects how you behave. If you believe that no matter what you do, you're going to be fine in the end, then you know what? You're not really going to care too much about your own life or do acting out in ways that, that hurt other people. And so, doctrine really matters. It, uh, how you think affects what you do. How you think affects what you do. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying there? Now, I'm not saying that every doctrine matters the same. There are some people that believe Jesus died on a Wednesday and was raised on a Saturday. There are some people that believe Jesus died on a Thursday and got up on a Sunday. And most Christians believe Jesus died on a Friday and got up on a Sunday. Look, whether you're a Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday person, we could still be friends. That, to me, is an example of a doctrine. It's like, not going to lead to you shooting up an L.A. fitness center. But that's something that, you know, maybe is, is interesting or it has, has an, an effect on some other understanding you have about the Bible. But to say that no doubt doctrine matters is to ignore this sort of thing right here. Let me just give you the three 
quick reasons here on this why doctrine matters. One is it affects what you do. A bad doctrine can lead to damnation. A good doctrine can bring countless to salvation. So doctrine does matter. I'll give you another example. In the Middle Ages, it was common to burn heretics at the stake. A heretic is somebody that disagrees with the Catholic Church about doctrine, essentially. Now, this made perfect sense within their, their worldview because medieval Catholics, I don't know if you ever heard of Dante and his com Divine Comedy, the Dante's Inferno, but uh, Catholics believed that hell was a, a torture chamber that involved fire, okay? So they would burn you at the stake because that's where, that's where you're going anyhow. As soon as you die, you're just going into God's fire. So this sort of brings the fire of hell onto earth so that people can see it and be like, wow, I don't want to get involved with this guy. So it was a deterrent. Makes perfect sense, right? Doctrinally, totally cohesive, logical, based on what their beliefs were. Seemed like maybe even a compassionate thing because then it, it unveiled the destiny of anyone who would get in, involved with, with this kind of belief, right? But yeah, how do we think about it today? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if maybe not the Catholic Church, around here would be the Baptist Church because they're the majority uh, in the state of Georgia. What if, what if they burned somebody at the stake? They just tied somebody up and they, they're like, well, this person, um, they don't believe in once saved, always saved anymore. So we've told them to repent and they didn't. So we burned them at the stake. I mean, how, how would that go over? Like, what if, what if you were standing there I mean, wouldn't you be screaming? Wouldn't you be doing something? Wouldn't you be calling the police? Wouldn't you be trying to get a bucket with water? I don't know. Something to, to put an end to it because you'd just be so horrified by that. Because it doesn't matter if it's internally consistent. It's a bad doctrine. You know what I mean? Burning people at the stake is just a bad doctrine. Can we all agree on that? Uh, and so what you believe does affect what you do. And, there, and then there are many good doctrines too. All right, so for this class, we're going to look at understanding biblical doctrine. Uh, that's, really, that's really what I was calling before level one, is uh, understanding biblical doctrine. And then level two is basically engaging alternatives, alternative doctrines. And then level three would be like, I mean, there are infinite levels, I suppose. Understanding the comeback and how to respond, right? So first thing is, what do you believe? The second thing is, all right, what do other people believe and how do I dialogue with them? And then third, third level is like, okay, so now they're coming at me, they're trying to tell me that their doctrine is correct, that my doctrine is wrong, what's my comeback? How do I explain their criticism of my beliefs? Well, that's it for this short introduction. I hope you're excited to start the new year off with a new class. I've provided an extensive outline in the show notes for this episode that you can check out at restitutio.org under episode 156, Theology 1. I look forward to journeying with you through this theology class and hope that it will strengthen and challenge you in ways that will help you be better for God. Before signing off, I wanted to read out a few comments on our last episode, Interview 49, They Never Told Me This in Church with Greg Dibel. John Roftos writes, Hello, Sean. I love the interview with Greg Dibel. Greg's experiences resonated so much with me. 
Listening to his life experiences, I truly felt like a stunned mullet. His attitude is inspirational and very encouraging for those who have accepted the price of true discipleship. Also, it is encouraging to see God's hand in making things grow here in Australia. Thanks for airing this interview as it has made me aware of his ministry book and how I can get in contact with him. I am excited how this could lead to some fellowship with others who share the same principles of worshiping God and being followers of Christ. Keep up the good work, Sean. Thanks, John. I'm I'm excited to see how fellow Australians can connect up with Greg. I know that Restitudio does have a number of listeners from Australia. I wish you all the best in organizing and getting together. Kate writes, quote, less organization, more inspiration, end quote. That's got to be the quote of the year for me and sums up my heart's desires at the moment, too. Great interview and great to hear a fellow Aussie and friend on Restitudio. Thanks, Sean and Greg. Thanks, Kate, for that encouraging remark. Also, Jenny Wayeth, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Pardon my American accent here. Uh, She writes, Greg's articles on his website are well-researched, and his writing style is as charismatic as his laugh. Greg mentioned having more videos, etc. However, the written articles remain cherished, too. I attend a Skype group which links ladies from England, Wales, South Africa, and Australia, and we have so enjoyed reading Greg's articles and discussing them together. Thanks, Sean, for your work and commitment to helping share the good news. I thank each of you for writing in and sharing your thoughts. If you haven't yet heard Greg Dybul's interview, check it out. Interview 49, They Never Told Me This in Church. Well, that's it for today. Please share this episode with anyone you think would be interested in it. I'll catch you next week, and remember... The truth has nothing to fear.